Hey Brian, hey listeners, welcome to the 43rd episode of The Goods Film Podcast. Glad to be here as we continue Circus Month. Yeah, it's Circus Month. I'm stoked. I'm amped. This week we have maybe the most apt title we could possibly select. Indeed. So as I mentioned last week, our first week of Circus Month, I am something of a circus neophyte. I might have gone to one when I was a kid, but I have really not spent a lot of time thinking about them or learning about them. And so I wanted something to to do some level setting here for my first selection of Circus Month. And that is a movie called The Circus. It's a 1928 Charlie Chaplin film. Had you seen this prior to this week, Brian? I had never seen this one before. Uh, My Chaplin background, I did do film studies in college, so I've seen several. Uh, I've watched The Gold Rush, City Lights, and Modern Times, I believe. All pretty good, but those didn't have any monkeys. And (laughs) here we will see are some monkeys. Indeed. You also used to dress up as Chaplin. Yes, So we featured Chaplin movies several times at the William and Mary Global Film Festival, which I was a part of for a few years. And one of the years, the theme was film in the city. And so we were going to show City Lights. And the professor told me that, I don't know how he came up with this idea or we came up with this idea, but that he wanted me to be Chaplin at one of the events during the weekend when the film festival was going on. But then the next thing he says is he wants to film like a promo for that event the week ahead. But that means that I got to be chaplain a week before the weekend. And as Pam says on the office, if you're Charlie Chaplin, but you take off the hat, you're Hitler. (laughs) So that meant that I was going to class in Charlie Chaplin garb for a week. And I pretty much just chalk that up to advertising for the festival so that's my level of devotion and then in uh, 2014 they asked me back to do it again for the gold rush because the theme that year was journeys and passages and uh, he does a lot of traveling in that one that's cool now what about you dan which chaplin films had you seen before so i know i've seen chaplin don't know if I've seen a feature length Chaplin start to finish. One thing we'll talk about is his brand of slapstick is very sketch oriented. So you can watch scenes kind of on their own. And so I know I've seen segments of films like I've seen. Is, isn't it modern times that has the iconic thing where he gets stuck in the gear thing and he gets pulled around through that? Yeah, he gets sucked through a machine. So I've definitely seen that. And then I think the dancing with the rolls, I think that's in City Lights. So, yeah, definitely little bits you can consume Chaplin that way, too. And certainly he did many short films, too. Indeed, I think his style lends to short films very well. I, on a whim, about a month ago, watched The Immigrant, 
I don't even know why. Like I read some article that mentioned it or some other movie review that mentioned it, and I looked it up, and it's free to watch online, and it's only like 23 minutes. So I just watched it. And he plays the tramp, or at least a version of his iconic tramp, in that one as well. And that one is fine. It's got some like kind of run-of-the-mill slapstick segments, but the iconic thing from that that I really liked is they're on a boat trip. So they're, they're immigrants on a boat trip and they film it with the boat rocking. And so you see this whole set rocking. And I don't know if he moved the camera to do that, or he actually had a moving set to pull that off, but that was really cool looking. And you know that we love movies with immigrants on boats. <laughs> Indeed. So another notable thing about this selection, our oldest movie to date, 1928, beats out one of the generic titled ones, which, oh, it happened one night. 1934 is it happened one night. There we go. We like to complain about titles that are extremely generic and don't tell you very much about the premise on, on this show. Um, and that certainly falls in that category. But but I did like that one. But we have a new king for earliest film and indeed first silent, which I know that you had one in the pipeline you were thinking of picking at some point. So maybe we'll see that one, too. Yep. Uh, I think that one's also 1928. Certainly we are not done for good with silence. But The Circus, I must say, is a film that does not suffer from a vague title. It tells you what it is. Yeah, it's it's right there. You're going to be hanging out in the circus. And indeed, that's how most of the movie is spent. But I have, I've been watching a lot of Silence over the past six months or so because I've been slowly, in chronological order, going through 1,001 films to see before you die. And because I'm going in chronological order, I'm in the mid-20s now. And of course, everything thus far is silent. That's impressive. I am kind of blown away that you can be working through multiple film selection lists at once you're also watching uh, woody allen's filmography and whatever you would call the roster we've put together for this podcast well i don't know if i've said it on the pod or even to you brian but my goal for 2021 like one of my few resolutions is to watch 250 films in the year and i'm i'm not counting most shorts so that's a lot of movie watching so i've been trying to i, I watch movies every night when I am doing my chores and sometimes I have second screening at work so I'm trying to crank through them <laughs> wow that's the dedication we bring at least Dan brings <laughs> and and me uh, vicariously so since we are in a theme month one precedent we set during our last theme month was each week selecting a discussion topic related to the theme. So for time loops, for example, we asked, as a reminder, we did time loop month back in fe February. We asked questions like, what would you do if you were in a time loop? What would your first 100 days look like? What, uh, what's a version of a time loop story you haven't seen that you'd like to see? So I thought we would bring that back for circus month, even though it's Brian's month. Brian gave his thumbs up to the idea. So the, the question I bring to you, the discussion topic is, how do you, how do we feel about the use of live animals in entertainment acts and in film? Uh, broadly speaking, I'm for it. I think we could have saved this discussion for the end and I, we may well return to it. 
but I think it is at least more realistic than trying to create a CGI simulacrum of an animal. From an entertainment and spectacle perspective, I 100% agree. I'm on the record multiple times here on the podcast that I just get amped when I see like a big live animal in a film, like especially a bear. There's no bears in this one, but if it's a live bear, it's like it's a goddamn bear, and I'm I just couldn't be happier. Like I can't imagine a point of my existence happier and more thrilled than I am right now watching a goddamn live grizzly bear on the the screen in front of me. That's the reaction I get when I see an animal. There you go. Um, I do know that there, in general, things are moving away from the use of live animals, mainly from the perspective of animal rights. There's like a long history of animal abuse in basically all forms of entertainment. In film, they eventually crack down on it, but there are like terrible stories of movies up until like, I don't know, maybe the fifties or something where just many animals would die during the filming. And so now you often see a disclaimer, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. They, they couldn't have used that very much during the early days of Hollywood. No, probably not. And I mean, different places have different standards. There's the urban legends of, uh, in Milo and Otis, if you've ever seen that one, there's a scene where the kitten goes over a waterfall and supposedly they, they went through more than a couple to get that scene. That's one that I've heard before, yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah. If we go on very long, it turns bleak. Certainly there are nuances to the matter. But uh, animals get used for lots of things. And you know. I will say I know that it's not a completely vanished norm of filmed entertainment. You know, less than 10 years ago, there is a episode of Game of Thrones where Brienne, who's kind of like the tall woman warrior in a sort of attempt to kind of demean her, gets thrown into a gladiator pit to battle a live grizzly bear. And it is indeed a live bear in that too. One of my more memorable scenes from Game of Thrones for that reason. But I know that the, this issue of backlash has been particularly big and harmful in the sense of, well, I'll say harmful to the industry of the circus world. That's definitely true. Yeah, you could argue that it kind of sank the biggest circus left. Uh, we mentioned in our discussion of Greatest Showman last week that Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, which was already an amalgam of like the circuses that were left, uh, discontinued their elephants like early in 2017 and then the whole show folded a couple months later so uh, I'm sure it was a, a mix of things but the elephants specifically were supposed to be a big part of it yeah and of note not to spoil but although there's many live animals in the circus 1928 there are no elephants which from a spectacle perspective was a slight disappointment for me but I know that that is like the iconic circus animal and the one that is kind of the most, to your point, notorious for being subject to poor treatment. And that goes into film, too. One of a very early film that was like one of the first film controversies was 
Edison made a film where he basically, it's just an elephant snuff film. Like he just electrocuted and killed an elephant on, on film. Have you ever heard of that one or seen that one? I have. I've seen that one. Yep. And it is distressing. It's uh, it's what you would expect, you know. Yeah. Silent films early on, not too much artifice unless you're talking about George Moyes. It's like, turn the camera on, something happens in front of it, movie ends. Right. So, no, no fakery there. I guess one last thought on this is... Brian, you've asked me about this offline before. So I typically do not eat animals or animal products as part of my diet. I am almost entirely vegetarian and then vegan maybe three quarters of the time when I'm eating. And you asked me basically how I reconcile that with, I don't know, I've been kind of flippant about animals in the past. Well, specifically, the wording that I used was I was drawing from our My Octopus Teacher discussion. You quoted Werner Herzog saying that animals don't have a secret life or like an interior life. Like what's going on in their heads is not much beyond survival and that that doesn't take like a language or a sentience. Indeed, um, that is basically how I feel. So I would say there's some nuance to my opinion is the main reasons I eat a whole food plant-based diet is like, I would say the top three reasons are environmental impact, health reasons, and because my wife and family do. And so therefore it is an act of solidarity. I, I feel that I'm not saying that like we shouldn't care what we do to animals. Like I really think, for example, I think factory farming for food is like really evil and destructive to things. And I won't go too down far down that rabbit hole, but if you ever want to be disgusted about the meats that you eat, do some research on factory farming. It, do you have any films that you would recommend on the topic? No, I have a book I would recommend and that is how not to die. There is a chapter on animal-borne infections from, from foods, and you basically learn a lot about how gross animal foods are. So, like, the things that we typically fear in foods, um, like salmonella and um, things like that, from, from meat specifically and other animal products, like, one... The reason that that's fairly prominent in the U.S. and not in the in other countries, for example, Europe, is that some other countries have stricter rules about factory farming. Wow. Well, I have not read this book, so I probably should before I make commentary on the topic. But I don't talk politics on the show too often. Um, no sense in sowing division too much. Uh, I will say I still do eat meat in my diet and often i think about shrimp shrimp is delicious for one but also i like that i can eat a lot of them <laughs> it's like devouring an army and it makes me feel very powerful if i could grow large enough to eat five cows i would probably do it <laughs> man's dominion on earth the kind of second half of a thought that i started and didn't get to finish is that although i think there are bad 
things, and I'm certainly not an advocate for like more animal cruelty or like making conditions for raising our food worse. I also don't blame people. Like I, I it's it's a stance. It's a situation where I take a stance personally, but I don't tell other people. To, I don't feel strong enough about it to like try to implore others to take that stance. I guess. Well, that's admirable. Principles are admirable. Proselytizing is not always. But yeah, animals on screen, lots of fun. Hope the, the animals cast got treated pretty well. This was made in time to 28, so I don't have a lot of confidence in that matter. But, you know, hopefully we're getting getting better about those things. Any any concluding thoughts on this before we divert back to towards the movie? So this might be a blistering hot take. I don't know if this has ever been said on air before. Monkeys are funny. <laughs> that's my closing word. Monkeys are funny. No, that's. I'm going to put a pin in that one for good things about this film when we get to that. So uh, the circus was not only directed by Chaplin and not only stars Chaplin, he's also the writer to the extent that there's writing, the composer of the score, and the editor for the circus. It's really impressive that one man was able to do all of these things. Definitely. He's a polymath. And what strikes me most, I think, is that he did the composing of the score for a silent film. And that's kind of weird to think about. Just... Like, um, Modern Times has a song that he wrote. I think this one at the start had a song that he wrote. And you don't, at least I don't, immediately think of even that being, like, something you could include with a silent movie. So, like, if it was an old-school theater and they didn't have any sound sync tech, I guess they would, like, send out the sheet music to the piano players or something. I don't know how this would get out there if this was shown at a theater that just showed silence. Yeah, I've read a little bit about that in the history of film books I've read recently. I think you are right that the majority, it, it really varied from theater to theater, but in general, they had a piano player on staff who would basically just play the sheet music. And I don't think it was very well synced mm -hmm. to the movie because, of course, your tempo could vary a little bit. And over an hour and a half or whatever, you get quite a bit off. It's not like you're going to strike the piano the instant the frying pan hits the head or anything like that. It's uh, it's kind of just more setting the tone. Um, but it's also interesting that, I mean, even in 1928, I'm sure when this was being made, it was still pretty much exclusively silent movies out there being released. But in 1927, of course, the jazz singer came out and... Even after that, Chaplin would stick with silent movies for a few more outings. Like City Lights was in 1931, and that's still a silent movie. And then Modern Times was in 1936, and that's still almost all silent. And was the last appearance of his tramp character. Because I guess he, he thought that that needed to stay a relic of the silent age. I completely agree. I think... This is the fourth of his 11 features. He was very prolific, but only made 11 feature-length films. I don't know exactly how many of them are silent, but they're universally well-regarded on the 
they shoot pictures, don't they list, which I frequently cite as kind of the authoritative uh, medalist collecting all of the film ranking lists out there and kind of churning out an overall movie ranking that kind of reflects the critical consensus. Nine of Chaplin's 11 films are in the top 1,000, and the other two are still in the top 2,000 on that list. So that that is a pretty impressive uh, streak and output. This this was the fourth of his, but yeah, some of some of his most renowned masterpieces were around the corner. You're right into the kind of bridge between talkies and silence. I actually think I was going to talk a little bit more about this later. I think there's a lot to this film that is autobiographical to Chaplin. And in particular, I think the ending, which, you know, we're full spoilers here, so I'm just going to dive right into the ending where he leaves the circus behind and kind of lets the show move on without him was in whether consciously or subconsciously, perhaps a reflection of where he was with the medium at that point. Like, I think he foresaw that talkies were taken over and that maybe, you know, he obviously still had life in him, but his specific act, his specific shtick was not too long for the world. Yeah. I think that's astute. Have you ever seen the clip from the Oscars where they gave him a lifetime achievement award in like, 1977 or something it's been a long time uh what what is the the thrust of his remarks i just think it's interesting that he has remarks and just to see him walk out on stage in the 70s it's very jarring i mean he's not in his costume or anything but to to hear him talk and you just really think of him being confined to that era before you would hear him even though i uh like uh, great dictator has sound obviously there are chaplin movies with sound um and he delivers like a big dramatic speech in that one um still a little odd though a little jarring yeah agreed and he's he's a good speaker he's a good uh writer and a good orator that honestly does surprise me given how involved he is in the creativity of all of his his outputs seems like a thoughtful guy one interesting thing about his output, kind of to your point, that it's jarring to see him not as the tramp, is he basically played a character across many different movies, like the same character with the same look and same personality. It's almost like a mini franchise or something like that. Sure. It's like, I feel like you don't see too much of that in that day, although maybe you did with the comedians. Maybe a lot of the comedians kind of played the same characters or character types over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a quote from Chaplin describing his tramp character, who, if you picture Charlie Chaplin in your head, is probably what you're picturing, where he's got the baggy suit and the bowler hat and the little cane. But Chaplin described the tramp as a tramp, a gentleman, a poet, a dreamer, a lonely fellow, always hopeful of romance and adventure. I like that. That's a good summation. It's a versatile character. He can be, of course the goof but there is also something soulful and sometimes sad and sometimes romantic about him and, and sometimes he's got a little bit of an edge too oh yeah yeah definitely so this movie in particular it is well known for having an extremely troubled development it apparently got delayed almost a year 
because like it was just a murderer's row of bad things happening to Chaplin one after the other. He had a really bad divorce with his second wife. His mother, who he was close to, passed away. The studio burned down partway through filming. And he got dinged by the IRS for multiple million dollars in back taxes. And so he was sorting out a lot in his personal life as he was putting out a product that does not carry very much of that sadness, at least on the personal front, I would say. But indeed, it finally was released in 1928, three years after his most recent feature. And I am ready to hop into it. Cool. Uh, the movie starts when we meet a ringmaster of a circus who is the stepfather of a young woman who is identified as a horse rider. We often see her hanging in sort of like a trapeze kind of hoops thing, but um, she's listed in the credits as a horse rider. Interestingly, the credits simply list her as the horse rider. The actress's name is Myrna Kennedy, and there is one intertitle that names her Myrna, the same name as the actress. So I'm just going to call her Myrna throughout the rest of this recap. Yeah, and this is pretty par for the course with Chaplin movies. They'll start out with like a dramatis personae title card where it's the role and name of the actor. And often the female character is just called the girl. Uh, so the horse rider is a little more descriptive, I suppose. Uh, but often, if they're referred to by name, it'll be the name of the actress. Like um, one of them, it said the uh, the actress is Georgia Hale, and the character is called Georgia. So interesting. A little bit of a recurring theme. Gotcha. So this ringmaster is a cruel taskmaster to Myrna, and we see that she's apparently messed up a routine, and he beats her he strikes her and he says he's gonna withhold her food which reminds me of i don't know if this is from a like a douglas adam books or something but the old line beatings will continue until morale improves like i feel like if you're going to be an entertainer at the circus having a low morale and energy is probably not going to help out on that front yeah this guy is bad news and like every scene where he's by himself with the girl he's roughing her up so not great, um, but I, oh, the, the withholding food thing. He says you're not going to eat tonight, but then it like goes on for multiple scenes when it seems like time is passing. So I don't know how long she doesn't get to eat for. Yeah, I agree. Mostly we just see him like pushing her and punching her, but he's always carrying this big nasty whip. I think one later scene, he threatens to like actually hit her with that. But he's definitely got an air of violence and can cause you bad damage on a moment's notice all about him. But once we meet them, the movie cuts away to Chaplin's Tramp. So he's kind of at this carnival where the circus is the main attraction, I guess. And he's kind of wandering around and he's getting up to shenanigans. The main one is he is in a pickpocketing scam and he eventually gets caught for this, which kicks off the first chase scene of the movie. He's kind of running away from the cops who are chasing after him. There's a really cool shot during this segment where 
the camera is kind of gliding, keeping Chaplin in focus and in the same spot of the frame as the rest of the world around him blurs by and the cops try to keep up. It's it's just a really cool shot. And as he's he's kind of running away, he eventually like tries to evade cops through various carnival attractions. So a couple really good ones are one is a mirror house, which has some really cool and funny effects. He's like, he keeps getting confused. And in fact, to the viewer, it's not even really clear which one is the physical chaplain and which one is just a reflection. And he is like trying to grab his hat and then like other people are trying to chase after him, but they all keep bumping into the mirrors thinking that they're grabbing the other person. And it's, it's just a really cool uh, little sketch. I thought, yeah, I'm glad we get a fun house here. Hoping we'd see some of that in our circus movies. And I'm glad we do. And it's, it's funny because he like, kind of starts getting used to the mirror maze and then like you say other people start running in and so he's got a little bit of like a home field advantage in this crazy environment because he's been in so many times and then after he steps out of the the fun house with the mirrors i guess it's attached to that house or whatever but he is kind of on this boat with animatronics it's like a fake boat with these things that are moving around very mechanically and we get a really good impression of him pretending to be an animatronic, like moving in the same mechanical pattern over and over again to try and avoid detection by the cops. I, I thought that was another funny bit. Yeah. This is great. Another thing that I'm a fan of, animatronics Yeah, represented here. But after much chase, he escapes into a circus tent. And the cops are still trying to chase after him, but he like stumbles into a live circus show. And there's, like, clowns who are doing silly, like, running on this wheel thing. And he tries to avoid the cops, but it's, like, this, all this slapstick gone wrong. They're, like, slipping and sliding around each other, bumping into each other. And the it's constantly cutting from the action to the crowd, who is just laughing it up. Because we had seen prior to the tramp and the cops chasing him entering the circus tent that the crowd was pretty bored. And then when they come on, we see them laughing really hard. So this, it's a bit of meta theatricality here or something like that. It's like they're laughing at what we are also laughing at, which is in universe on display for them, but is also on display for us. I thought that was kind of clever and kind of interesting. Yeah. The, the clowns who are held up as sort of controls to be the unfunny clowns at the start. Uh, man, not very interesting. I mean, when they've got that big spinning thing, that's kind of cool. But uh, a lot of their act is just like hopping around. And I can see why that would not sell a lot of tickets. <laughs> uh, although, to be fair, there is one clown whose costume is he has like a wash basin on his head. And in the wash basin, there's like a little uh, washboard and a little ringer and a little towel. So it's like this whole little scene inside his hat, which I thought was kind of neat. I would have liked to have seen that hat close up. Yeah, I agree with all of your points, especially we talked a little bit last week about how clowns get a bad rap as being scary. 
But here we have something that might be even worse than a scary clown, which is a boring clown. Definitely. Another one of the acts that they get involved in is this magic show. And so it's like a disappearing woman act where she goes from a stool to a nearby little booth, basically, that they would open up. And it's part of trying to avoid the cops. He gets mixed up in all of this. And it does this whole like bait and switch. Every time you think it's the tramp, it's the woman and vice versa in like kind of the hidden things. And there was some of like showing how the trick is done. Like, you know, at this point, Oh, the way it works is there's a tunnel underneath the stool to where the booth is. And so that's where they keep bumping into each other and stuff. And I thought this was also pretty, a little interesting uh, sketch that we got to see. Cause it, you know, it opened the door and all of a sudden the tramp would be there, et cetera. Yeah, it was pretty funny. And it's the kind of thing that I would expect to see in like a Scooby-Doo sequence, like an animated thing where it's easier to bend the laws of physics. But because some of this is pretty fast paced as he's disappearing and reappearing. So it was well executed. Agreed. But as this wraps up and the, the ringmaster basically gets the tramp off stage the crowd starts demanding the funny man. They want the funny man. And this definitely was a moment where I was starting to think this might be a little bit autobiographical for Chaplin's experience in the entertainment industry. Coming off of his biggest film ever, The Gold Rush, now he's kind of making this commentary on an entertainer who the crowd both loves, but also loves to see humiliated. Yep, he's a commodity now. But... The ringmaster, hearing these cheers, offers him a a job, basically an audition the next morning to join the circus act, which, of course, the tramp is a jobless man wandering from place to place. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take a job. So we cut to the next morning and we see Myrna still without food, as you were saying at this point, basically taking some food from the tramp. And this is kind of when the two meet. I know I don't know if all of them, but I know certainly some of the Chaplin films are kind of billed as a romantic comedy where Tramp and the female protagonist kind of circle around each other for much of the duration of the film. Right. Yeah, that's in, I think, all of them in some regard. All the ones I've seen, City Lights, Modern Times, Gold Rush. So then it's time for the Tramp's audition. And this is another kind of interesting angle here. But when he auditions to like actually try to be funny, he is unable to be funny. He just botches all of the kind of pre-planned comic set pieces and instead like inadvertently gets shaving cream all over the ringmaster, for example, or like dodges out of the way when he's supposed to get smacked in the, the skit. And I liked implied thought on overly contrived humor and, and, question of the artificiality and authenticity of the shenanigans that we're seeing. And it was also just funny to see him botching these things when clearly like Chaplin himself is a very able comic slapstick performer. I did like the very first thing when they tell him to do something funny is he just starts doing his silly walk. Uh, (laughs) And it's, it's pretty funny. They don't laugh at it in the movie, but just him like shuffling around and trying to amuse people the face he makes when he realizes that he's not being successful are all pretty funny right 
So the ringmaster shoes him away. He's failed the audition, no job. But as luck would have it, right then, apparently some workmen are due pay and are not getting their pay, so they quit. And so now the circus needs more manpower. So the tramp gets roped into doing that handiwork. And this is where we get the Simpsons, I didn't do it gag. Because as he's trying to help out, he just botches over and over again the like basic work of caring for the circus. And it always ends up with like things crashing and people bumping into each other and animals getting annoyed and stuff in the circus tent, which he's back to being the funny man as he's botching this handiwork. And again, that is a gag used explicitly in a Simpsons episode. Yeah, in that one, it's um, Bart wins like a walk-on role on the Krusty show, and he like knocks stuff over during the performance, and then says, "I didn't do it," and becomes a superstar off of that catchphrase, even though it's not really his own comic talents that gave him that fame. And much like Chaplin's character here, the way that that Simpsons plot goes is as it becomes kind of more canned and planned out, the funny just isn't there anymore. Just like the tramp can't pull off these pre-planned acts during the audition. So I guess the gist here is that like he's now a handyman and they just he thinks he's a handyman, but he's constantly screwing up and it's entertaining the crowds and bringing in lots and lots of money. We get an intertitle that basically says, the act thrived, and it doesn't really expand beyond that, but that was my take on what was happening here. Yeah, these guys that he's working with, ostensibly, are like teamsters. They're the property men, but their job is to just like carry things from point A to point B. And of course, he's always dropping plates and falling into trash cans and stuff. Right. As this is going on, there's some passage of time here, and we see the tramp has hit it off with Myrna, and is constantly sneaking her food. Again, I guess this like food deprivation is just indefinite. Yeah, that's her life now. <laughs> there, there's one sketch here that I liked, where as part of his, his duties, the tramp is trying to give a pill to a horse, and I guess the mechanism that they do this is that they have like a tube that they put the pill in and they get the horse to chomp down on the tube and then the caretaker blows the pill through the tube into the horse's mouth. I don't know why they they would do this. I don't know how real this is of a thing, but inevitably the tramp ends up swallowing this huge horse pill himself. And that was funny on its own, but then as he's stumbling around, he manages to get locked into an animal cage, which has a lion and a tiger, and they are both real. And he's like trying really hard not to get the lion to wake up because the lion starts sleeping, and and just like everything goes bad. This dog comes and barks. He like almost drops this big pan of water and stuff. This was one of my favorite s- sketches of the whole film. I thought this was really funny. Yeah, every beat was great and well-timed because, yeah, he comes into one side of this circus wagon and there's a lion in there and the lion is asleep. So then he's just got to get out of there quietly. But then there's a dog barking at him and, like, a thing falls and blocks the door so he can't get out that way. And then 
he like is able to open a panel in the middle of the wagon and pokes his head through and on the other side is a tiger who's awake right and roars at him. and that's that's a really good reveal yes yeah. <laughs> it's very sudden and then he's just got to immediately back out of there they definitely don't shy away from having Chaplin like right up in there with these big animals. So I take it these were very well-trained animals, but I felt a sense of danger for him, let's say. Yep. If you've seen Tiger King, it's <laughs> this is not a entirely safe situation. Eventually Myrna helps him out, but not before when she sees what's going on, she faints. And so he's like trying to use the water from the pan to wake her up without making any noise. I, I like this beat too. Finally, he manages to get out with the help of Myrna, but that that was a highlight for me. Subsequently, we have an interaction with Myrna in the Tramp where she reveals, yeah, you're the star of the show, obviously, which I guess she knew and had been talking with him, but like, Somehow he had not pieced together that every single time there's a show, he gets on stage and botches it and people cheer. I, I don't know. But when he now that he's realized it, he realizes he has some leverage against this cruel ringmaster. So first he threatens to quit if the ringmaster strikes Myrna. And secondly, he wants more pay. And of course he... Starts to negotiate well, and then he ends up undercutting himself with some bad negotiation. A classic little gag. But it it seems at this point that things are finally going to start going well for him because he doesn't have to see Myrna tortured anymore, and he is getting paid. And by the way, Myrna is just a great old lady name. Oh, it's right up there with like Edith, Agnes. Right. Uh... <laughs> I had a grandmother named Murtis, which is arguably less appealing than Myrna. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, not necessarily a movie star name, but uh, all, all of these are kind of lost to time. Maybe they'll make a comeback. I think some of these names, like things that have Mur in them, are either nicknames for Mary or derived from nicknames for Mary. Like, I think my wife has an aunt named Myrnie whose real name is Mary. Okay. I can see that, I guess. More than Hank for Henry, anyway. Yeah. Jack for John. Bill for William. So, sometime later, the tramp overhears Myrna having her fortune told. And this fortune teller tells Myrna that... She will find love and marriage with, I think it's a tall, dark, handsome man. And the tramp assumes that this is himself. And so he goes and buys an engagement ring. I guess a clown has an engagement ring for some reason, but he manages to buy an engagement ring from the, the clown with the intent to propose to Myrna. Lots of funny undercurrents here. First of all, that the, the goofy tramp would consider himself the tall, dark, handsome man is pretty funny. But he's dark, at least. Yeah. <laughs> he's not a blonde. That's true, yeah. And that he just buys an engagement ring from a clown, just what appears to be literally minutes later. I got a kick out of it as well. One more thought on the fortune teller. I've never been much about supernaturally stuff like 
psychics or fortune tellers or astrology or anything like that. Um, the one time that I have witnessed a fortune teller telling a fortune in real life is when you and I went to New Orleans and you had your fortune told by a street fortune teller, Brian. Do you remember that? I do remember. That actually ended up on the cutting room floor for the Gauntlet episode because I kind of ran out of time and it it wasn't super compelling. Uh, I did spend like 20 or 30 bucks for it, though. So what was your takeaway with that experience? Similar that I didn't find it very compelling. I mean, in general, I don't find any of that stuff compelling, but I also didn't find it very entertaining, at least. Um, So I I guess I'm not surprised it didn't make it into the episode you were filming of our trip down there. My, uh, My favored experience with a fortune teller was at J-Day, which was an activities fair that would be held each year at our high school in the run-up to summertime. It was like during May they would do this. And one year the neuroscience teacher was a fortune teller as an act. And you could go up and get your fortune told and your palm read by this guy who was, you know, a scientist, a rationalist. So he was playing a part. But that was kind of fun. He uh, he looked at my palm and told me I would live a long life, but frequently be unlucky in love. So uh, <laughs> I, I think that delivered a little bit more than the uh, the one in New Orleans, who was mostly platitudes. Right. <laughs> That's good. Man, J-Day. I haven't thought about J-Day in a while. A guy who was in marching band with us had a ska band named the Shenanigans that performed. I don't think you would have heard them because... I think he graduated the year before you entered high school because I'm a couple of years older than you. But I always thought that, first of all, that that band was good and also that that was like the peak possible name for a ska band. Yeah, a lot of good memories from J-Day. A lot of uh, interesting activity ideas, like like real-life Pac-Man where you're running around a maze and there are people dressed as ghosts and... Uh, there was one where you just paid a dollar and they had an artificial Christmas tree set up and there was a big stack of burnable CDs that you could throw like ring toss at the Christmas tree. And I, I don't really think you could win anything. There wasn't much of an aim, but it was a lot of fun to just wing CDs at this Christmas tree. <laughs> That's good. I remember a couple of acts too. Uh, one was, so some context for this is that Brian and I went to a science focused magnet school that had the reputation for basically being 100% geeks. I think was actually a pretty diverse crowd with lots of different personality types. But given that reputation, I always thought it was funny that one of the acts that always entertained me is they would have freestyle rap battles. And so some of the students would basically go up and like rap disses at the other people. And I still remember some of the specific insults because they seem so clever. And I was just amazed they came up with them on the fly because they were like specific to the person that just hopped on stage, unless they like all coordinated in advance, including about like things they were wearing and stuff. Then these were actually being made up on the fly. And I just was so impressed by that. That's awesome. Yeah. But back in the circus here. So we've just heard that Myrna will meet a tall, dark, handsome stranger who the tramp thinks is himself. But just then Myrna bumps into a new member of the circus, a tightrope walker who very much fits the bill. He's kind of your classic 
early century handsome dude. You know, this is the guy, what was the name when we watched um, It Happened One Night? There was King, she's got the boyfriend, King somebody. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me look it up. And this is the dude I was picturing, basically. Not not whoever they had playing King in that movie, who was like an old guy with a mustache. I was picturing this dude, who's like suave. King Wesley. Okay, there we go. But here, his name is what? Rex. Rex, yes. Uh, which means King. There you go. There's wow. the connection. But <laughs> uh, this guy, I would say, is is a little more dashing. Right. He's got like a costume that you would not expect a tightrope walker to wear because he's in like an opera cape and a tuxedo. And his act is that he climbs up the rope and is doing his tightrope walker shtick. And then his tuxedo is like tear away. And he'll rip that off. And then underneath he has the more traditional tightrope walker leotard underneath i thought this was cool too and we we do get to see his act um and either cleverly filmed or just really impressive like this guy is either an actual tightrope walker or there's well concealed wires or something because it was really impressive and i thought it was just kind of basic at first but he does like a, a jump and spin and still lands on the wire I thought it was cool to see this high wire act. Yeah, it reminded me of another movie that I could have picked for Circus Month. At this point, I've got like three months worth of Circus Month ideas, so we may need to come back sometime because there's some good tightrope walker movies. The one that I was thinking of was 2015's The Walk, uh, directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, not making an appearance this month, at least not yet. That was an adaptation of the same story that the documentary Man on Wire is based on. Some people say the documentary is better, but I recommend that one too. So when the tramp sees the connection between Myrna and Rex, he becomes very dejected. We get a kind of cool, but also sort of out of place scene where it's like double exposure. The tramp while sitting down and watching Myrna and Rex being affectionate towards each other imagines himself getting up and like beating up Rex to win back Myrna. Meanwhile, we see him half fuzzy still sitting on the bench or wherever he's sitting on. And after we get like the imagined beat up, it cuts back to reality with the tramp just sitting there and Rex and Myrna still being cute towards each other. Yeah, this is an old-timey effect that I like. Usually it'll be like a dream. I guess this is a daydream. But uh, there was a Gauntly episode on the topic of sleep where we recreated this effect. I recently watched the Swedish silent film The Phantom Carriage. And that one makes heavy use of both color tinting, black and white, and the, the double exposure to make people seem like ghosts. So the idea here is that you're running the film through twice and one of the times you have something in one place and one of the times you don't have that thing there. And it, and if you use basically the same setting, it makes the thing that was only there for one of the filmings seem very ghostly and transparent. 
That was another fun. I think uh, Millier's also made use of that one too. But in addition to being bummed, he lets this kind of carry over into his act. And so now his act is, is brought down by his troubled personal life, which is an interesting reflection of, of course, what was going on in Chaplin's real life. But unlike Chaplin in real life and in this movie, the tramp is, is unable to still put up a good show. And you also have to think that some of his trouble with the act stems from now being aware of it. I mean, if the whole thing was that what made him funny was not knowing he was the star, now he knows he's the star. Right. So one day, Rex doesn't show up for his high wire act. Don't think his disappearance is ever actually explained, but what it does allow is for the tramp, who we had seen once or twice practicing tightrope himself, in theory, to fantasize about impressing Myrna the same way that Rex has. The ringmaster who had seen that basically says, hey, you know how to tightrope walk, just you get up there. And at the suggestion that he might not be fully qualified, the ringmaster says, eh, I got insurance on him in case he dies. So it's no burden to me. If he dies, he dies. (laughs) In the words of Ivan Drago. (laughs) I do feel like this would put a damper on your act if, if like a man died during its performance like that might have other negative impacts beyond the loss of your profitable star. Yeah, I guess it depends on what kind of circus you want to have. <laughs> Bring it back to the Roman days. Yeah. However, the tramp has other plans. As he agrees to go up on the tightrope, he arranges a mechanism with another one of the property workers to basically attach a wire to him so that should he fall he will be saved by the wire and as you would probably have guessed at one point the wire fails and the tramp doesn't realize it so he gets up on the high wire and the crowd is ooing and aahing and He's starting to get confident because he knows he has this wire and he's starting to do like extra wild acts and like leaping and dancing and stuff. And then he notices the wire isn't there and he starts panicking and freaking out and like kind of gets frozen in place, balancing on this wire. And just coincidentally, this is when the monkeys come out. We had seen the monkeys like a scene earlier, or at least one of them. And for whatever reason, this is the exact moment that like six monkeys swarm the tramp and start like tearing his clothes off and tickling him and biting him and like all the worst things you could imagine when you're desperately trying to balance for survival on the high wire but i loved it i was really glad we we got some monkey action as noted earlier by you succinctly monkeys are funny this was so good because yeah i mean the timing with the harness that he's got on is funny already where like sometimes the guy is pulling too tight and he's kind of lifting off the wire and bouncing around like that. And then it comes off of him and we can see that it's off of him because it's like dangling behind him. And then he like spins around and then he sees that it's not on him and he starts freaking out. And then this troop of monkeys shimmies down the wire and starts climbing up him as he's panicking. And one of the monkeys, 
I don't know if it was trained to do this. I suspect it was just monkey instinct is to bite him on the face. <laughs> like, it looked like it was biting him pretty hard. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like <laughs> gnawing on his nose. And, you know, he at least appears to be balancing precariously while this is happening. And then, yes, because remember, he's got Rex's clothes on, and part of Rex's act is tearing off his clothes. The monkeys are pulling all of his clothes apart. A and then one of the monkeys sticks its tail in his mouth. So he's, like, <laughs> deep-throating this monkey tail, which cannot be hygienic. And I was laughing out loud a lot. I'm glad. Another one of the highlights of the movie, for sure. Another thing I really loved about this segment, I talked earlier about, like, there are moments when you really get a, a sense of the physical danger that Chaplin's character is in. This is, like, the peak of that. Like, w when he loses the harness and he's, like, dangling there for dear life, I was like, oh, I, like, like kind of reached towards the, the screen instinctively to, like, grab him and, and balance him. Like, you really feel like... He's going to fall or might fall, which just adds to the comic insanity of these monkeys coming out. Totally. Um, but but he does indeed survive the act. He gets to the other side somehow. And the concluding thing of Rex's act is there's like a bicycle set up on a wire. And you he basically sits on the bicycle and it goes down the wire and rolls off stage. But for whatever reason, when <laughs> when the tramp does it, that part goes as planned, but somehow, like, it keeps going all the way into a shop where he bumps into a barrel of flour that he gets on the customers around him. So, one last stinger on this uh, this pretty funny tightrope bit. <clears throat> but when the, the tramp returns, for whatever, it wasn't exactly clear why, but the ringmaster's really enraged, maybe just because the tightrope act went poorly. And he's taken it out by, again, beating up on Myrna once more. And the tramps finally had enough of witnessing this. And he kind of intervenes and punches the ringmaster real good, gives him a black eye. And so the tramp is on the spot, fired, no longer an employee of the circus. The makeup on this black eye that the ringmaster has is pretty good. I, he looked injured. Yeah, it looked nasty. And then we cut back to the tramp, back to his normal tramp life, which we've seen a couple of glimpses of throughout the film, where he's just sitting on, sitting next to a fire, heating up some food in a can, when who should approach him but Myrna, who declares that she, too, has run off from the circus and is leaving the circus life, and can she join him on on his his own journey so this is where i thought the movie was going to do a little happily ever after but it pivots i don't know how frequent this is in the chaplin films i kind of want to hear what your take is on this but instead chaplin says no you shouldn't come with me but what you should do is dot 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 and then he goes and finds rex basically says rex you should marry myrna here is the ring that i bought for her a while ago Indeed, we then immediately cut to the next morning. I guess she said yes, and uh, they were able to get their things in order real quick because the next morning we see the wedding at the courthouse, Myrna and Rex getting married, the tramp appearing to be the one attendant and throwing rice on them. 
and they all go back to the circus. So I guess they're going to rejoin the circus now with Rex as the husband will protect Myrna. And they agree to come back only if the tramp gets his job back too. And the ringmaster, still with that nasty black eye makeup, agrees. And we see the tramp heading kind of to the back of the this wagon train of the traveling circus. And when it's time for him to hop on, he doesn't. He just watches the circus kind of go off into the distance. And that's how the movie ends. Um, so, Brian, is this is this something that happens frequently in Chaplin's features? Or does he usually get the girl? So, I thought it had happened in other movies. Uh, by the way, F in the chat for the tramp after this just brutal friend zoning. Oh. <laughs> uh, but, no, it's actually, it seems like this is the only one. I read the plot summaries to check. And usually it's, like, ambiguously positive that they could end up together after the events of the movie. In in modern times, they definitely walk off together. In City Lights, it's like they hit it off and, and things could go positively from here. Uh, rarely is it so final uh, against the Tramp as it is here. The interesting thing is it's not just that he was quote-unquote friend-zoned, but she basically like offered to go with him and maybe get married to him. I don't know if that was implied in the, her wanting to basically go journey with him, but he declined that and instead brought Rex and her together. I haven't seen any adaptation of the hunchback of Notre Dame in a long time, but I remember that that's kind of what happens to Quasimodo is he, he falls for a girl Esmeralda, but doesn't end up with Esmeralda. Basically gives his blessing for Esmeralda to be with whatever the name of the beefy blonde guy is. Yeah, Phoebus. So I thought that that was interesting. That's what it made me think of. I think you're definitely right. It's also vaguely reminded me of a Western. The lone hero going off in the distance saying goodbye to civilization to live his loner life. I think it reminded me of a very specific ending we've talked about recently. Did it ring any bells for you in terms of movies we've covered here on the podcast? I could probably think about it for a few minutes and come up with it, but why don't you hit me with it? What did it make you think of? It's the ending of Tokyo Drifter. Oh, yeah, it is. Because the, he's just dedicated to his life. He's got he's to gotta go be the Tokyo Drifter. Right, right. And again, he, he basically turns down the woman who threw herself at him towards the end of the film. That's, in, that's an interesting connection. I, I like this ending a lot. I it brought me back to what I was talking about earlier about how this in some regards is like a commentary on Chaplin, how he views himself as someone who's going to kind of embrace exactly what he is rather than modernize with the times and know that the world might leave him behind, but he's still going to be himself. And I think to your point earlier that he continued doing this for at least a decade afterwards of doing mostly if not entirely silent films with you know this very similar shtick long beyond the time that the jazz singer brought talkies to the masses i thought it was pretty poignant and and i kind of i kind of liked this ending yeah it's always got to end with him like still wandering because that's who he is so he's the tramp yeah but that wraps the circus, 1928. 
Brian, do you want to talk about some good things and some not so good things? Let's do it. So I think to me, the central good thing about this film is that Chaplin's movies and style of slapstick is really just transcendent physical comedy that will always be funny and charming. Like I actually am legitimately thinking about showing this movie to my four-year-old in the next few days because I think this is the kind of thing that just translates to everyone. You get who the tramp is as a sympathetic guy and you also are kind of swept away by his his uh, very impressive slapstick, goofy physical comedy, getting into mischief, getting things not quite right, getting chased, bumping into things, falling into things. Oh, that's a really good point. Something we talked about in my film classes was that silent era comedies were really popular because, as you said, they just transcend all the boundaries because there's no words. It's all physical. So any language, any nation, people can understand it. And to your point, uh, people of all ages, too. Whereas these days, I read another think piece that there's never going to be a hundred million dollar comedy movie because it won't make its money back overseas because these days comedy relies a lot on language spoken jokes and things that are hard to in some cases translate oh that's interesting yeah right because you think about the the big movies less and less it's traditional comedies it's always tentpole action flicks right and action being another thing that plays well because it's visual uh, and so right. it can be appreciated by people speaking different languages. Definitely. I also liked that this movie gave us a circus in what felt more semi-authentic as a, like what a circus would actually look like. So I, I feel like the, the late 1920s, I assume the circus was still very popular. It's thriving at that point. I don't know. I didn't read enough about Chaplin to know like how much experience he actually had with circuses. But as opposed to The Greatest Showman, which we watched last week, which is very artificial, in some ways charmingly so, in some ways less charmingly so. But this one, like I could imagine the space of a real life circus and what it would be like to be in a circus, which is not something you get from The Greatest Showman. Right. And I, I mean, as you said, some things about the authenticity are charming and some things maybe not so. You do have the ringmaster whooping on people, especially the girl. Yeah, that was a slight downer for me. How, I mean, so many of the movies, now that I've watched a bunch from the 1910s and 1920s, it's not even questioned that like there is a damsel in distress and someone is very cruel to her. And a hero basically saves the girl. Like, I know that that's, we know that that's a trope, but once you actually start watching these old movies, it's pretty gratuitous. So that's always a bummer to see. I did like that she had an act of agency towards the end. She did ultimately get married off to the pretty boy, but she was the one who decided to leave the circus and to like go out and forge her new life in some ways as like a partner with the tramp. Like, let's go do this together. At least that's what she proposed. Um, I, I was glad it had that final grace note for her. But on the point of authenticity, we got real animals, which we did not have. That was a noted downside of The Greatest Showman. The crappy CGI, Dumbo-looking elephants, and 
just weird, bad, fake animals. This one's got real animals, and they're used very well. And there's a handful of them. There's either a horse or a donkey who constantly chases after the tramp. I didn't mention him, but he's always got a, got a smile out of me or a chuckle out of me. There's the monkeys we talked about, the lion. I'm trying to think, were there any other ones that we didn't talk about here? Oh, there's the dog. There was the tiger. Oh, the tiger, right. So good animal pre- representation, though. As mentioned, no elephants. But that, that raised my enjoyment of this film. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a big part of my rating. I've already talked a lot about something else I liked, which is the way that this commented both on Chaplin's career specifically but also like the nature of entertainment by in some ways like disrupting or mirroring the process of viewing entertainment, like how we're watching these people laugh at something that is also funny for us, but also like we see them doing bad versions of it and then they're not laughing at it. And I don't know, just this representation of be the funny man was both interesting and felt actually kind of personal and evocative for what Chaplin's role in the film scene in the silent era was. So I thought that was, was pretty cool. Yeah. Something to the point that like audiences just see a face that is put on by a performer. They don't see what's behind the scenes. They don't understand his real struggles. We have this character who's just bumbling through but the onlookers just take that to all be part of the act. Exactly, yeah. That's that's right. Did you have any other good things about this that you wanted to, to mention? I agree with all the things you've brought up. Great to see the monkeys, for one. And <laughs> it, when the animals did show up, it was always well-timed comically. Right. A combination of, you know, the editing and the cinematography, but I, I think genuinely good performances from the animals. And it's just a very circusy movie. It's called The Circus. It gives you the circus for pretty much the whole runtime. Hard to pick a better entry for this theme month. So I applaud you, Dan, for digging this one up. Thank you. Yeah, it scratched the itch. It brought me back even more into the, the circus mindset, so I'm looking forward to the rest of this month for sure. Although one thing that was absent here that was prominently featured in Greatest Showman is the quote-unquote freak show. There's none of that even hinted at in the circus. Well, maybe we'll be getting some of that next week. <laughs> I guess we'll see. I had a couple of not-so-good things. And again, some of them just tie back to the genre, which I mentioned earlier. The building block of this type of slapstick film is a episodic sketch that lasts a few minutes. It all does tie together in a story that's kind of very coherent and the action derives from that well. So I feel like this movie does a good job of making it kind of fit smoothly, but it still has ups and downs in the sense that Here's a funny sketch, and now it's resolved. And now we're going to have to set up another one, and here's funny and how it's resolved. And there's just kind of a slightly numbing rhythm to seeing that over and over again. It's almost kind of we see him thrown into these situations one after another, more so than an overall arc, I guess. Yeah, there's a bit of a learning curve with silent movies. 
I mean, sometimes you'll hear people say that they don't like black and white movies, and I, I take a little bit of umbrage with that because, I mean, it's still got all the things it takes to be a movie, so uh, it's just like, just suck it up. But at the same time, I do find myself sometimes struggling a little bit when there's no sound. So I, I maybe I see a little bit of what people are getting at when they say they feel distanced from the black and white. Uh, just taking it a little further back. Um, but I think Chaplin's generally flow pretty well and are engaging even to modern audiences. I do agree with that for sure. Another thing that I thought was interesting, I don't know if this is a not-so-good thing or what, but the Tramp character himself is like extremely clownish and non-realistic as a person which i know is like he's he's a slapstick performer so that that's what it is that's fine but i think of a movie that came out just six years later and that was it happened one night where the characters in that more or less felt like real people with real relationships obviously it's a very different genre and to your points uh there's no sound in a chaplain so it needs to convey everything physically and that kind of lends itself to more clownish behavior but um, it just, it does feel like old and different and fake. I don't know. I was just in my head comparing it to It Happened One Night, which I still think felt really modern for a movie that was 80 years, almost 80 years old. So just another kind of genre medium observation there. Um, that was actually the extent of my not so good things. I, I thought it's about 75 minutes. I love a sub 90 movie. I think much longer than that, and this could have worn out its welcome even more than it did. I think it was about as long as it could be. Uh, and I, I love me a sub-hour-and-a-half movie. Flowed really well. O- overall, positive things to say about this one. So, Did you have any other not-so-good things you wanted to mention before we rate? No, I'm in a similar place. I liked it overall. Um, your mileage with silent movies may vary, but I think, as you said, good runtime on this one. If it drags, it's not much, and it's not often, and it holds together pretty well. Yeah. I can't remember whether I mentioned this or not, but this one is ranked number 731 on the They Shoot Pictures Top 1000, which that's that's a pretty impressive rating. I mean, that's higher than almost all of the ones we've seen. I know Chaplin's high regard in general, but this is reflective of a movie that I think is is canonized as as a great film. So it's good, good to watch a classic. Are you ready to rate the circus? I'm ready. So Brian is the circus 1928 by Charlie Chaplin. Good. Well, I think it's apparent by now. This is only our second entry of the theme month, but I do like the circus. Uh, and in specific, this film, I would say I also like it. I'm going to give it a very good, a 6 out of 8. And this is buoyed largely by the monkey scene. I I wasn't sure going through. I mean, I was liking it overall, but it was like the needle was hovering at, at 5 out of 8. Good. And I was waiting for something that was going to push it up higher. And then we get this perfect timing of <laughs> all these monkeys crawling, them all, crawling all over him and... Like I was, I was a little worried about how grievously they were going to injure him when they were biting his face. It was like, where is this going? Is this, uh, is this Travis the Chimp territory? I don't know. 
Uh, and, and meanwhile, he was um, precariously perched on a high wire. So lots of good comic moments in this movie. And it just really all comes to a head in this tightrope walker scene. So that's where I'm at. I'm glad, yeah. And yeah. Uh, where did the chips fall for you, Dan? I am right there with you. Uh, I'm also going to call this a very good movie. And again, that is six out of our eight goodness levels. I actually have it as a pretty high six. I I really like the undercurrents of the film and how it made me think about Chaplin as an artist. And that added a lot of depth to what was otherwise a, a fairly episodic story. I, I liked the bittersweet ending too. And I just loved the animals and a lot of the gags made me laugh out loud. I, I My favorite recurring bit is when he is surprised by something like you're you nailed it when he said when he noticed the tiger and got scared and surprised and and went back into the the lion cage instead of the tiger cage anytime he was getting surprised by something that was always making me laugh and there's just a lot of a lot of good stuff in this it's it is really accomplished as this kind of physical comedy silent comedy feature and I think it's very much worth a watch. I might even watch it again in the next week, as I mentioned, with my, my daughter. Um, I'm, I feel like she would like this one, but that, that's where I'm landing this. Uh, a very good movie for me. I wanted to give props again to the fun house scene. Anytime you got a house of mirrors, generally that's going to rank well in my book. So check out the circus. Agreed. Another highlight. But that wraps my thoughts on this film. We've walked through it, we've given our, our pros and cons, and we've adjudicated its goodness. And so now I, I pass the, is there something, do they pass batons in a circus? What is the, what is something I could do? Pass the top hat, I guess. I pass the top hat to you, Brian. Yep, uh, run out into the ring, and now I'm Zac Efron taking charge. You know, dance with Zendaya for, for a few measures of music here. Yeah. Um, Oh, that was one thing I didn't give appreciation for. That little moment when they do the dance where Zac Efron and Zendaya are like hopping from foot to foot. I, I like that. It was mirth- mirthful. Yeah. It's funny you mention that. I've been watching songs on YouTube from this movie, from The Greatest Showman, a lot in the past week. <laughs> oh, believe me, I've been doing it since 2017. <laughs> and there's an extended version of the title track this is the greatest show the the opening and closing number of that film that i really like that i think it's my favorite number of the film in general but the extended one has a little more footage it's like four and a half minutes it has hugh jackman riding an elephant to go to his daughter's ballet i do not think that that was in the theatrical cut i would have remembered him riding an elephant no we we just see him we just see him show up on the elephant and they're like, Daddy! And he's just sitting on the elephant. But yeah, I also noticed that the goofy hopping dance, I like it too. It's a little, I don't know what they were trying to accomplish by it, but they're like walking backwards, hopping from heel to heel. And it's just, it looks almost like a goofy walk. I don't know if it was like supposed to evoke something specific, but that that is a good, a good... I'm I'm a little sad that on YouTube, the like official lyric video from Fox where it's got the words across the bottom, it obscures their feet during that part. It's like, we're missing the key element here. 
Oh, <laughs> that's too bad. Yeah. But uh, back on the topic at hand, uh, you mentioned that in this week's entry, we were missing a little bit of the freak show element. So next week, I want to restore that maybe in more ways than one, because the movie I've selected is directed by David Lynch, a director we've not seen yet among the films we've covered. And uh, I hear that he tends to be very strange. I've watched a couple episodes of Twin Peaks. Uh, we'll see if that holds true in his movies, because the film we'll be taking a look at is The Elephant Man. That's awesome. It's about the story of Joseph Merrick, a deformed carnival star, at least for part of his career. He became the subject of anatomical studies. I think he had something called um, Protean Syndrome where basically his bones grew weird, especially his skull. So all these uh, uncontrolled bone growths led him to have a very strange appearance. And hey, it's got elephant in the title. I, I, I think he spends at least part <laughs> of his time at a carnival or circus uh, environment. I watched like the first 90 seconds of the movie and it kicked off with creepy carnival music. So I think we're in for a journey that is at least somewhat circus themed. So I hope you will join me, Dan, and listeners. I absolutely will. I'm looking forward to watching it and discussing the film. And I love to talk about David Lynch. I'm excited to talk about him too. And it should be a fun episode next week on The Goods. Just get ready for more Circus Month. Yeah, it's circus month. Bye, guys.